You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. And welcome to another episode of Driving Law. Uh, This week, we have back our most popular and favorite guest. Well, I don't know about favorite. We have a lot of favorite guests. But one of our favorite guests and one of our most popular guests every time, Eric McGracken. Eric is a lawyer. He is a partner uh, at McIsaac uh, Group of Companies, and he works in Victoria, specializing in personal injury cases, specifically related to ICBC accident injury claims. Uh, Eric is heavily involved with uh, the Trial Lawyers uh, Association of British Columbia and other organizations that protect the rights of people who are fighting for uh, justice for people who are involved in motor vehicle injury cases. And uh, Eric's probably most famous for his amazing BC Injury Law blog, um, which shout out to Brazen Bull Creative, who did a cool makeover of it this year. If you haven't been to the BC Injury Law blog, you need to go. And if you are a lawyer practicing in the area of personal injury claims, you definitely need to go. This is like required reading. If you're not reading it, you are behind the times. Eric does helpful analysis of uh, all of the relevant case law that as it comes out. Um, it's the most up-to-date resource for lawyers and the search functions are amazing because you can actually search by the types of injuries and stuff to try and find um, case law that is relevant to your client's circumstances without having to use those expensive legal databases. So Eric is an amazing resource for everyone and he is also somebody uh, who has uh, agreed to spend some of his evening on the Driving Law Podcast, talking to us tonight about some of the most interesting issues that have been coming out lately dealing with ICBC injury claims, dealing with the BC government's uh, unsuccessful defense of their rule change in court, and really what the role of personal injury lawyers is in representing their clients in these cases. So everyone, welcome back to the podcast, Eric McGracken. Thank you, Eric, for joining us on the Driving Law Podcast. How are you doing this evening? I'm good, Kyla. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, anytime. You're one of our favorite guests. Um, so let me ask you about this court ruling in the, uh, I guess, what is it, Thursday last week, um, finding that uh, the changes that limited the number of experts uh, a person could bring in their personal injury trial were unconstitutional. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, thank thank goodness, I guess, is the is the short version because these changes limiting how many experts somebody in a personal injury case, starting off with ICBC cases, and then it would get uh, expanded to other personal injury cases over time. The limit of three experts per case is adequate for the vast majority of cases out there, but where three experts is inadequate are for the most seriously injured people. And British Columbians involved in car crashes where they're paralyzed, suffer brain injuries, or suffer uh, multiple injuries that need multiple experts to comment on, those people were going to be handcuffed in their ability to prove their damages. Mm -hmm. And the real problem that, you know, a lot of folks identified with the rule when they first saw it 
was it was a hard cap. There was really no way around it. The you know, the way the rule was drafted, um, the courts could themselves get involved with hiring their own expert witnesses if they thought the parties weren't bringing enough evidence to the table, and that really isn't the role of the judiciary. So it wasn't practical. The, the hard cap, with this exception, is one that the courts wouldn't want to exercise, and the result would have been terrible because terribly, you know, catastrophically injured British Columbians wouldn't be able to prove their damages. And the really sad thing is ICBC was banking on it. These, these headlines were coming out this week about how this court ruling is going to set back ICBC by hundreds of millions of dollars. When you dig in to how ICBC was planning on saving money, it wasn't necessarily all about the cost of expert witnesses. It was about plaintiffs not being able to prove their damages, thereby ICBC was going to um, increase their profits. And that really, you know... It's a lousy rule. It's wonderful that it was struck down. Mm-hmm. And the good thing is litigants now in B.C. have certainty that they could move forward and marshal the evidence they need to prove their case. So this is a good result. Now, having read the judgment, do you think that there's room for the government to come back uh, at this a different way and, you know, uh, write the rule differently and get away with it? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, that's a great question, Kyla. There's there's two parts to it. I guess first and foremost, what uh, Chief Justice Hinkson said is, look, this rule's unconstitutional. It doesn't fly the way you did it, um, you know, just as a rule change. But if you come back with full-blown legislation, so if you bring in new legislation and try to bring in the exact same rule that way, that's not going to work either because British Columbia simply doesn't have the constitutional authority to tie the court's hands this way. But if they are more creative and if they did what they should have done the first time around, which is consult with the profession, consult with the judiciary, consult with um, you know, stakeholders in our justice system, I think a rule limiting evidence could be crafted. And you know, frankly, I think, you know, I think I said this on Twitter, if you read between the lines, and the lines are so wide you could drive a truck through it the court's mm-hmm. basically saying look leave judicial discretion intact and cap the number of experts so so if bc wants to say three experts per side wonderful so long as the court has true unfettered discretion to in appropriate cases allow parties to marshal more expert evidence than that so i think there's you know there's a really easy solution there for the government if this is what you know, they want to achieve in terms of limiting how many experts could come to court, but they have to do it in a way that respects the real needs of people that access the courts to prove their case, and in a way that respects the court's role in adjudicating cases as well. But yeah, I think there's, you know, I think there's room for reform, and there's just a different way the government has to go about achieving that. Do you agree with the government's sort of claim that's been made a bunch of times about how there are lawyers out there who abuse experts and end up bringing, you know, way more experts than are necessary and wasting court time and client funds and ICBC's money and this, that, and the other thing. Do, do you think that happens? Well, you know, I don't think there's any profession or even aspects of any profession out there that can go uh, without criticism at all times. So you could pinpoint uh, poor practices. You could pinpoint poor examples out there. Uh, you know, that are deserving of criticism. But I don't think it's the norm or anywhere near the norm that lawyers are over-experting files. 
there's disincentives built into our system from doing that. One, courts already have the discretion to exclude evidence if it's not necessary. So every judge is a gatekeeper in their own courtroom about what kind of expert evidence is ultimately going to be admitted. And if plaintiffs, if litigants or the lawyers on their behalf, if they're the ones um, retaining the experts, if litigants bring unreasonable expert evidence to the table, they face the real risk of not having those disbursements recovered. And that's a big hit in the pocketbook of litigants. So you know, the system the system's simply designed to keep litigants, uh, you know, to make reasonable choices in how they present their claim in court. Uh, but, but, you know, what you're referring to, of course, is earlier last week, and I suspect our attorney general knew the court ruling was coming and that he was going to be on the losing end of the court ruling. He uh, went and did the rounds and did some media, and an example was paraded around of a settlement that had, you know, at least at least at first glance, and perhaps even after last glance, excessive disbursements, excessive expert witness costs. But this case was put out there without any context. The name of the plaintiff wasn't known. The name of the law firm wasn't known. Mm-hmm. There wasn't any objective reporting behind this. It was simply, you know, an example put out there showing, look at how high disbursements could be. And had you seen that case? Because you're... I saw that was yeah. if these disbursements are so unreasonable, and they might have been unreasonable, why would ICBC pay those? ICBC is not forced in a settlement to pay disbursements. They have the right to settle a case and to take the disbursements to taxation where the court has overview in deciding what's reasonable or not. So, you know, it's really, it's really tough for me to justify um, the Attorney General's tactics in terms of trying to inflame the public about how lawyers are using expert witnesses. And by the way, I, I, you know, I think um, uh, you really deserve uh, some high praise, Kyla, for that article you oh. wrote in Vancouver is awesome this week. Thank I you. think you did a great job sort of calling out the BS for what it is in terms of the government's tactics this week and trying to throw personal injury lawyers under the bus and trying to demonize personal injury lawyers when, you know, in reality, the vast, vast majority of lawyers representing clients are doing the best job they can to advance their clients' interests. And they aren't trying to run up any kinds of costs. They're simply trying to advance their cases and discharging their burden of proof. So thank you for everything you said. I I truly couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) Thank you. I was just so incensed when I read uh, that article that I I couldn't not write something. I was like, "Ah, I shouldn't feed this beast but now can't leave it alone so you know there you go <laughs> well you know and, and you and i went back on twitter as well and and you made a great point there where where i basically said you know it, it pissed me off as well because i could see what the attorney general is up to right away he's coming up with a scapegoat and he's putting the talking points out there he doesn't want the talking points to be hey we crafted an unconstitutional rule change and the judiciary came down hard on us and, and, you know, gave us a setback. Instead, he wanted the talking point to be, look at how bad lawyers are, or look at the disservices lawyers are doing out there. Mm-hmm. And by taking the bait, you almost give the attorney general what he wants, which is, okay, here's the narrative he wants in the media. But you made a great point, which is silence isn't a good alternative. If, you know, if you're silent, they get their piece out there. And there's no real debate where the public could make an informed decision about what's going on. So I'm glad to see lawyers like you tackle 
these issues and be able to you know be able to speak your mind and and just commenting on this a little bit more i guess the second article that came out um icbc for the first time ever and for reasons that are entirely unclear to me decided in their annual reports to publish how much they pay out to specific law firms and when the media ran with this and and i think the attorney general was making comments as well um you know it's really an effort to mislead the public they're making it sound like lawyers plaintiff personal injury lawyers are receiving all of this money and that's oh yeah true I was going to say, that, if you guys were getting all that money, I'm, I'm, I'm considering a career change. <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose I'd be retired. But yeah. the money that, and my firm's um, you know, name was published out there, and the money that ICBC, quote, paid us, unquote, what, you know, was published out there for the world to see. But that money is not our money. That's our client's money. That's money we recovered for the people who hired us, and it's in trust. It's paid for us in trust to our clients. And we pass that on to our clients. But putting that out there is another attempt to try to make the conversation about plaintiff lawyers as opposed to the financial performance of ICBC and why this corporation with a monopoly selling a product people are forced to buy mm-hmm. was able to turn a profit of hundreds of millions of dollars year after year is now losing money. You know, the one, the one really frustrating thing for me is in all of the efforts the current government's taken in addressing the ICBC situation, the one thing they haven't done is look internally into management decisions of ICBC and how the corporation is being run. And, you know, Kyla, you're a business owner. If, you're, yeah. if your business uh, enjoyed success year after year and then started losing money, I don't think you'd be looking for the boogeyman. I think the very first place you'd look is internally and what could be done to change your own management decisions and i'm surprised the government's not doing that instead you know they went so far as to pass the unconstitutional rule change trying to uh, save icbc money at the behest of injured road users and then we've got the second uh, issue that's before the courts the the, you know the so-called minor injury caps which are also vulnerable to constitutional challenge and that's that's making its way through the courts as well. But, but I don't like the way the government's been framing this. I don't like the way the government's been trying to inflame the public. And I don't like where their attention is, which is on the rights of people who are injured at the, you know, at the hands of careless drivers, drunk drivers, uh, et cetera. Um, you, know, you know, I wish the government would, would turn their focus on ICBC's internal performance and their internal tactics and why so many people end up retaining counsel in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's because they're not being treated fairly or they have the sense that they're not being treated fairly. When clients come to me and with, where, where they're being treated fairly, I'm pretty frank about it. If they've got a good deal on the table, I tell them they have a good deal on the table. And I tell them, why would you pay me money if you're being treated fairly yourself? But where they're being shortchanged, then the conversation's very easy as well, which is, look, you're being taken advantage of, the insurer's not... Uh, taking your real injury seriously, and then there's a value in retaining counsel. But yeah, this you know this has been a very frustrating you know, year, but particularly these past few weeks, it's been frustrating to see the way uh, ICBC and the government are working hand in hand. Well, I think the conversation about you know how much waste is happening happening internally at ICBC is starting to affect uh, David Eby because. 
he did tweet today, I don't know if you saw it, um, that in, he was, I'll read you his tweet actually. I was sworn in July 2017, three months into fiscal 2017-2018. At ICBC, there were 526 people earning $100,000 to $150,000 a year. 117 people earning $150,000 to $200,000 a year, and 32 people earning $200,000 plus, which is crazy. Because if you look at government, I don't think you find those numbers in like all of the British Columbia government combined. It's it's a huge amount of money. Yeah, you know, ICBC is a very management-heavy corporation as well. There's layer upon layer upon layer. Of, of you know different management positions, and there's probably redundancy within the corporation as well. And, and I think you know ICBC was being fairly criticized, which is look at your payroll, look at the way uh, you know your books look internally instead of focusing externally and saying all your problems are coming from outside forces. They're not. And I always come back to the fact of how successful ICBC was for many years. I've been at this for 15 or 16 years, and I'd say for the first dozen of those years, ICBC always turned a profit, and it was always a substantial profit, and absolutely nothing over those years changed in terms of the legal landscape. It's not like legislation was passed five years ago that increased plaintiff rights or somehow made uh, you know, made it more lucrative for somebody to advance a personal injury claim. The common laws remained incredibly consistent over the course of my career. Mm-hmm. And if those external factors are consistent, then again, I think the first place you need to look is internally. And that's the one thing that the government's failed to do with this recent you know, so-called dumpster fire that they keep uh, putting out there. Do you think that part of it has to do with the just generally increased cost of living in that claims are going to be paid out, especially in the lower mainland, you know, higher dollars are going to be paid out because it's going to cost you more to hire someone to do your housekeeping if you're not capable of doing that yourself. It's going to cost you more to hire someone to do your driving or mow your lawn or whatever you need done. It costs more and so your damages are greater. Yeah, Vancouver is a very high-income city, and so if you take a high-income-earning individual who's harmed in a crash, and if there's wage loss or if there's diminished earning capacity, the dollars are going to reflect that. So I think, you know, I think that's part of it. When you know, when you do have a high cost of living and high cost of services, and you're trying to replace those in a tort claim, real-world dollars do come into play. But you know, there's you know, there's um, there's cycles in the insurance business. Weather is one of the biggest factors. If we have a few rough winters in a row, you have a whole lot of extra crashes out there. You have a whole lot of um, you know, more injured people out there bringing claims. And insurance companies can, you know, ICBC in, in this case can take a hit. But this comes back to the NDP's other favorite boogeyman, not just lawyers, but they, of course, love to say, oh, look at the former government. And it's a fair criticism. The former government did raid the coffers of ICBC. When ICBC was making hundreds of millions of profit, instead of leaving those earnings retained in the corporation to save for a rainy day when when they have a bad year or two, all that profit was sucked out. And the problem is there wasn't much of a buffer. So, So ICBC was being run in a way where they couldn't have a bad business year, or all of a sudden there's this crisis. And the crisis could have been avoided by leaving all those rate payer profits 
in the corporations that have taken them out. You know, it's almost like an indirect tax. When, when the ratepayers pay this money towards ICBC and they have a profit, and if they have enough of a profit, you could reduce rates. Or you save the money behind in case they have a bad year or two. Now that safety cushion's been removed. But the current government's response, and, and you know, it's not an easy situation they were, they were faced with, but their current response of bringing in an unconstitutional rule change and possibly unconstitutional legislation, that's just, you know, that's just pouring gasoline on this dumpster fire where they could have a very unmanageable problem a few months down the road if, if the courts rule that the caps and this tribunal court blended scheme that they've come up with, and that doesn't exist in any province, so I think there's a real concern mm-hmm. that is unconstitutional. If, if, if that's struck down, they've got a real problem of their own making on their hands, so you know, they can't, they can't play the blame game forever. But, Kyla, I wanted to ask you, do you get a sense that there's a tipping point out there in terms of public perception or opinion, in terms of just being fed up with the ICBC monopoly and that the public are looking for a change in one form or another of, of how the insurance, the auto insurance industry works in British Columbia? I think I think so. I mean, the the comments that I've been getting, you know, since I posted my Twitter rant and then and then my article, have been that it's time to end the monopoly that ICBC has, and it's too expensive to get insurance in this province, especially now with all the changes that they just brought into the insurance structure. I'm paying more for insurance than I was before, and you know, I'm a driving lawyer. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. It doesn't make sense, but. You know, the, this is this is something that's frustrating people because for the vast majority of British Columbians, they're not people who are filing injury claims. They've not been injured in a motor vehicle accident. They're thinking about the money that's coming out of their kids' mouths and coming out of their family vacation fund and out of the car repair fund for when the minivan breaks down. Um, and I think they, what we've got, is not working. It's broken. Clearly, uh, nobody's been able to to make it sustainable. The Liberals just, you know, raided it and covered up the losses and hit everything. And the NDP is is trying to fix it by by you know taking it out of the pockets of hardworking British Columbians. I think people want to try something different. Yeah, that's the sense I'm getting as well. You know, it seems it seems for a long time whatever criticism came up with ICBC people, you know, there's always segments that had very strong opinions, but it seems like a critical mass mm-hmm. of the public is saying, okay, this really is broken. My rates keep going up. The coverage keeps going down in terms of, uh, you know, if, if somebody does injure me, you're taking my rights away. You're saying I can't go to court. You're saying when I go to court, I can't have the experts I need. You're saying that you're going to call concussions, uh, minor injuries. You're saying you're going to call severe and life-changing injuries, minor injuries, and you're going to cap my recovery, and I'm paying more for these reduced rights, ultimately something different has to has to come in. But, yeah, I'm, I'm getting the sense for the first time ever, and, and probably just over the last few months, that public perception is really, just, you're just really getting fed up with the situation and getting fed up with government, and I don't have to talk about the current government, but just government's handling of the ICBC portfolio over the past few years. So I think I think I think the story is not going away anytime soon. It's probably going to be a major um, election issue next time around. Yeah. So let me ask you then, Eric, as a personal injury lawyer, is opening up the 
automotive insurance market to competition and, and allowing for privatization, is that good for a personal injury bar? Well, in, in terms of what I want for my clients and, and for mm -hmm. myself personally as a road user, I want tort rights to be intact. I think blame needs to rest with blameworthy drivers. So if you're if you decide to text and drive or drink and drive or speed and drive or run that red light or do whatever careless things you do out there and you end up injuring me or my family or my clients, I want those injured parties to be able to be compensated for the losses and blame should sit with that careless driver. And I think the vast majority of the public believes that, right? When, when you talk about uh, a viable tort system, whether the government runs it or whether private industry runs it, that's a good thing, so long as it's being run in a capable fashion, as opposed to the other alternative out there, which is the no-fault model, think, you know, think WCB, where you say, you know what, I don't care if you're the drunk driver or the speeding driver or the texting driver, if you injure yourself, we're going to give you the same rights as the person that you injured. And the way you achieve that is a really harsh trade-off. You take away the rights of the innocent and you give the guilty party some rights for compensation to even the playing field and that's a trade-off that really doesn't sit well with the vast majority of people i talk to and so mm -hmm. to the extent that keeping a tort system alive where the blameworthy are held to account and the innocent are properly compensated for the, their losses that's a good thing uh, you know, there's a real push from the private insurance lobby to come in. Um, I think, I, I'm not sure if you saw it, but they actually bought a big blue dumpster and put the ICBC <laughs> logo on it and lit it on fire. Yep. And they, they played it like the crackling Christmas log up there for all the media to, you know, to have fun with. And the media runs with it as well. They actually do a really, you know, clever job getting, getting their message out there. But if the private insurance um, groups could look at British Columbia and say, you know what, we could do a better job. We could offer proper protections for drivers out there. We could keep tort rights intact. If, the, if these caps are unconstitutional, we could do business in BC without those caps. I'd welcome that conversation. And I think, you know, I think that's something that really does need to be seriously explored because if ICBC can't turn a profit while having a monopoly, the consumers out there will win when choice comes in, when you have yeah, especially good drivers are going to be the winners mm -hmm. of private insurance where uh, you know, the businesses are going to target the best drivers out there and give them the best rates out there, and the poor drivers are going to have um, the worst end of that bargain, but it's going to be a self-created worst end of the bargain. And, and so, again, I think, I think a real conversation at least needs to be had about how viable would the private insurance industry be out there. Is that something that's going to keep rates lower? Is that something that's going to benefit British Columbians? And I think enough folks are fed up that, you know, they really do like the idea of having some choice out there instead of buying this monopoly product, which keeps going down in value year after year. I want to go back to something you said, because it's something, you know, it's, I'm not a personal injury expert like you, but um, something you said about ICBC being able to tax the number of expert, uh, experts a person has, even in a settlement? Well, so, so sure, you could settle a case. Let's say, let's say you and I, you're, you're the defendant, you're ICBC, and I'm the plaintiff, and I say, listen, Kyla, let's, let's settle this case for $50,000 plus costs and disbursements. And you say, deal, done. And then I hit you with my bill of costs and disbursements, and you say, hold on, McGracken, 
you got 30 grand of expert witness fees here. What the heck is this about? I'm not paying that. You don't have to pay it. We could go to taxation. We can go before the court, and the registrar is going to take a look at my disbursements and decide what's reasonable and what's not. And the unreasonable disbursements will be not recovered, either those that are just outright frivolous and never should have been purchased, or the ones where the expert's charging outrageous rates outside of industry standards, the court could say, okay, it was okay for you to hire that doctor over there, McGracken, but the rate he charged you, that's nuts. I'm not going to make the defendant pay that. And so you could always negotiate costs and disbursements just because a plaintiff incurs those disbursements never obliges ICBC to pay them. It's, it never does, unless, of course, it goes to trial and on taxation after trial they're forced to pay it. But they never have to consent to it. ICBC is free to stand their ground if they think there's an unreasonable disbursement. And that's why I think it's really odd that they're out there parading um, a settlement around that they agreed to pay instead of fighting and then saying, look at how nuts this is. Well, if it's so nuts, and again, it might have been, but if it's so nuts, why didn't they take it to taxation? Why did they agree to pay it in the first place? Do they do they take things to taxation often? Yeah, yeah. You know, you know things are fairly frequently taxed, and, and I, you know, I, I hesitate there a little bit just because I'm almost never taken to taxation. I actually <laughs> pride myself on having very reasonable disbursements on my files. I always tell my clients. I, I've got a recovery rate of about 99 cents on the dollar, so whatever disbursements oh. I spend, I can persuade ICBC or whatever insurance company I'm dealing with to pay back those disbursements. Uh, but where firms do have very disproportionate disbursements, ICBC does frequently take them to taxation, and, there's, you know, and they enjoy success when they put their foot down in appropriate circumstances. Okay. Well, then... And is there any way of knowing whether this case that is being paraded around right now was one that went to taxation? Well, I, yeah, that's a good question. There's no way of knowing it without knowing who was involved. So, you know, it's just a bill that was put out there without the lawyer's name on it, without the litigant's name on it. So nobody knows. I suspect ICBC knows because they probably knew what was going to the media. I suspect the attorney general knows. But you and I don't know. The no. public that they were trying to inflame don't know. We just have one side of the story. And it's no case that you've seen in your, your you know, constant no, watching. No, there's no private <laughs> information laid out there, so it's really tough to scrutinize what it's all about. And even, let's assume that it's as inflammatory as it seems, and it might be. The one thing I really take issue with is parading that around as the industry norm. It's not the industry norm. No lawyer would want to spend disbursements like that on a claim for a settlement value like that case had. I'm forgetting the numbers now, but the settlement, the damages were maybe forty or $50,000, and the disbursements were greater than that. Nobody wants to spend more money on disbursements than the case is worth. To me, that seems like an extreme outlier, and without knowing the facts of what went on, it's really hard to take that as a meaningful example of anything. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that, you know, what happens, I guess this is a completely left field question, but what happens if you're in the middle of a claim and you die? Your claim largely dies with you. The way I, I actually just, you know, for whatever reason, I've had probably because of the volume of my practice, I've probably had about a dozen clients die over the years. And so it, it, you know, that's a fact pattern I'm familiar with. What normally happens is the client's claim largely dies with them. Their claim for non-pecuniary damages disappears because that's a personal award. That doesn't go on to the estate. Mm-hmm. Any claim for future losses are obviously wiped out as well. And all that's left 
is basically the claim for special damages. So any hard out-of-pocket expenses incurred to date, the state could advance that claim. And if there's any past wage loss, uh, which was sustained as well before death, the estate could carry on with that. But basically the claim uh, gets diminished to a very small fraction of what its value was before the person passes on, and the estate could choose to carry on with that and try to recover those damages for the estate, or sometimes they just they just want to walk away from the claim because it's one last headache that the executor doesn't want to deal with. So this claim might well have been somebody who died. Yeah, that's a great question. I never thought about that, but... but it's possible. Perhaps you have catastrophic injuries. That's that's really clever, Kyla. It, it, it <laughs> didn't cross my mind, but it could be. That could be the context. It could be somebody that had profound injuries, needed you know, you know, half a dozen experts to prove their economic and other losses, and then they passed on, and all that was left is their out-of-pocket expenses to date. We have no idea what the context, though, is. And, and by the way, if that's what happened, then there's real mischief mm-hmm. by putting that out there without that context. But, but even giving the benefit of the doubt, let's say it's something, um, you know, it, it, it's a case where outrageous disbursements were spent. My main point is that's not the norm. That's not the way lawyers I know conduct business. There's, you know, there's always outliers. There's always exceptions. But nobody's served by putting an outlier example out there and trying to um, trick the public into thinking that's the industry norm. That simply doesn't happen. So what's the next hurdle? What's the next challenge for uh, for the plaintiff bar? Is it the caps? Well, just before I tackle that, I have to, I'm still actually fascinated with, with where you went with that. I could see why you're a killer in cross-examination. <laughs> sorry, I did cross-examine me. No, I know, I know, so but I'm just thinking, geez, I wouldn't want you on the other side. Uh, with with somebody on the stand, I think you do an incredible job by just teasing out information and in, you know in a great way. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm still sort of hung up on that. What was what was your question? Um, what's next? What's the next you know big uh, big issue that's being tackled? We need to wait and see uh, whether these minor injury caps are constitutional. That's that's the big uh, you know that's the big question for everybody, both for ICBC and. A lot of injured British Columbians. I, I can't tell you how many calls I fielded since April where people are injured, people are off work, people are dealing with disability or other hardship, and I have to break the news to them about this minor injury law that they can't believe applies to them. And I say, well, don't, don't take the word minor injury to mean anything. Put that in quotation and then read what the government says a minor injury is. And it's basically anything other than broken bones. You know, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but that's largely what the definition means. And so there's a lot of people out there right now that are waiting to see what the judiciary does with that charter challenge. And then I think it's, you know, if, if, if the caps are upheld, I think everybody has to make peace with the new landscape and figure out how to move forward with it. If the caps are struck down, I think the government of the day is going to have some hard decisions to make there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, we're very much in a holding pattern right now, just trying to see exactly how the industry is affected moving forward. Now, what happens with the cases that proceeded under the old, you know, expert limitations? Are those people now able to appeal the, the judgments, the awards that they got, uh, claim they could have got more if they'd been allowed to introduce more expert evidence? I I don't think, and I'm so sorry because here I am on your podcast as a guest addressing this, off the top of my head, I don't recall if those limitations kicked in or not. I think they started 
for trials in 2020. So okay. I don't know that anybody actually went to judgment with those restrictions in place. That's good. Uh, <laughs> but, but, yeah, that's a good question. You know, if you did and you say you could have had further expert evidence on board, could you appeal if the law is unconstitutional? That's a pretty good argument. Okay. Well, anything else you feel is important for the uh, small number of members of the public who listen to this podcast to know? No, I, you know, I think we've done a pretty good job covering it. And, and again, I want to commend you for how vocal you are on these issues, because I know personal injury law is, is far from your core practice. Yeah. <laughs> you, you flirt up against it being a driving lawyer. Uh, and so I know, you know like I appreciate you're familiar with it, but I, yeah, I, I appreciate how vocal you are and you know, like I say, calling out the BS that's that's out there when when it's you know, be it an opinion columnist or be it the government trying to deceive the public or or create a false narrative out there. I you know, thank you for call, calling out the BS. I'm, I'm you know, I always appreciate all the lawyers that do that and, and stand up. And you know, the the government likes to make uh, personal injury lawyers the bad guys, and and that's you know that's a very unfortunate narrative to sell to everybody. So thanks a lot, Kyla. Uh, Appreciate you staying on top of these stories. Well, thanks for the work that you're doing to help people, especially in the face of what seems to be a, you know, an unstopping government attempt to take away the rights of people who are affected in motor vehicle injuries. You're fighting for the little guy. And I think people don't look at personal injury lawyers as doing that, but that's exactly what you're doing every day, and that's that's awesome. No, well, thanks, Kyla. <laughs> no, I appreciate it, and keep, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Good. How can people reach you? Uh, online, McIsaacandCompany.com is the website, the BC Injury Law blog. Just Google it because I've got a bunch of hyphens in there, so it doesn't roll off the tongue easily. But the BC Injury Law blog is probably my most uh, prolific online uh, presence. And on Twitter, my name, Eric McGracken, E-R-I-K-M-A-G-R-A-K-E-N. You'll see me yakking online probably more than I should. <laughs> well, perfect. And if anybody needs Eric's phone number, they can reach out to me and I'll provide you with their office number. Um, thank you again for joining us. This was great. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you again to Eric McGracken for taking time out of his very busy day uh, to join us on the Driving Law Podcast. I want to take a moment just at the end of the podcast here to talk about uh, two things. The first is, it is today, the podcast is being released on November 1st, 2019, which also happens to coincide with the first day of voting in the Law Society of BC Bencher elections. And for those of you who are lawyers uh, and are listening to this podcast, and lawyers in British Columbia in particular, I think it's important to talk about the Bencher elections because... Turnout for benchers in voting has been incredibly low. The last two by-elections, and I ran both times um, unsuccessfully, but, you know, maybe this one will make the difference. Um, third time's a charm, right? Uh, or fifth or seventh or until I'm dead, I'm going to keep doing this. Um, on both of the previous by-elections, voter turnout was less than 20%. Um, and that's really bad. That is, uh, that is an incredibly poor showing from our profession. The, I mean, benchers play a fundamental role in the lives of lawyers. Not only do they um, look at the law society rules and approve rule changes and amendments to the Legal Profession Act, they're also involved in all sorts of aspects of lawyers' lives, from discipline uh, even down to just what you pay in fees. If you think it's too expensive to be a lawyer... 
then look at your benchers because they're the ones who are every year approving increases in fees. And it doesn't have to be that way. I think a lot of people sort of tell themselves, well, you know, we have to have these fee increases because if we don't uh, have fee increases, then, you know, we're not going to keep up with inflation and the rising costs of, of being a profession. And that's simply not accurate. We don't have to have these fee increases. We don't have to pay as much to be lawyers. The Law Society of Ontario just lowered fees for lawyers. We could do that here too. You could pay less to do what you do. You could take home more of your income at the end of the year if we lowered fees rather than raising them every year. Um, and so, you know, you need people uh, on the benchers, um, elected benchers, who are looking at the fees and thinking, is there a way that we can structure this so we don't have to t make it so expensive to be a lawyer? And it's not just about, you know, lawyers keeping the money they earn. It's an access to justice issue. If you're paying, you know, four, five, six thousand dollars a year just for the privilege of practicing as a lawyer in British Columbia, you don't have a lot of money left to spend your time working on pro bono cases. You have to earn that money back and then, you know, enough to live off. It's a huge amount of money that, you know, I think lawyers would be more encouraged to participate in pro bono activities and to engage in access to justice if there weren't such huge barriers to actually becoming a member of the profession. And so fees directly correspond to access to justice. One thing that's been really disappointing me for the last couple of years is how little the law society is actually accomplishing when it comes to access to justice. There's a lot of talk, but not a lot of doing. And as a bencher, I would try and bring the doing to the table. I'm the type of person where if I have an idea about something that needs to get done, I try and do what's necessary for it to happen. Whether it's, you know, correcting the gender imbalance in, in networking activities for law students. You know, I organized a suit drive. I, I worked with UBC to make that happen. I did that because I saw a problem and I saw a solution and I took the time to put it into place, you know, dealing with self-represented litigants in traffic court. Again, you know, we saw a problem there. It was tying up court time. It was it was confusing for people. People were consistently running the same, you know, non-defenses to their tickets or unfamiliar with what was going to happen when they walked in the room. We took the time out of our schedules. Lawyers from Acumen Law and Philco Law um, through the BC Driving Lawyers took the time out of our schedules to make access to justice happen for over 100 people just in a six-week period and just in traffic court. That's me. That's, that's one person that's, you know, coming up with these initiatives and organizing other people to make them happen. Imagine what I could do if I had the power of the benchers behind me or with me in creating initiatives to enhance access to justice. And not everything has to be big. We don't have to have significant changes that allow paralegals to do everything lawyers can do and, you know, raise constitutional concerns about the right to counsel and, and frighten lawyers. Small changes can have huge impacts. Access to justice is as much about solving systemic issues as it is helping individuals get the justice they need through our court systems. And I, I want to encourage the law society to stop thinking big, because thinking big takes 
too long. Think small. Incremental changes, but changes that impact people's lives. It's doable. I've shown that. And that's why I think I would make a good bencher. I mean, you don't have to vote for me. If you're not a lawyer in British Columbia, you can't vote for me. Uh, if you're not a lawyer in Vancouver County in British Columbia, you can't vote for me. But if you are, and you are listening to this podcast, I hope that I have your vote, uh, or one of your votes. Um, I really do hope that I'm somebody that you can see uh, has the qualities necessary to uh, represent you as a bencher. Now, to wind off the podcast, I forgot this last week, and I apologize. It is time for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. And boy howdy, this one's a doozy. This was a pizza delivery person on Vancouver Island who was caught delivering pizzas um, and speeding, pulled over for speeding, but when the police officer pulled him over, he discovered he was in the middle of a FaceTime call while driving. This case is actually extremely interesting for two reasons. First of all, it's actually arguable that the cell phone provisions permit you to FaceTime while driving. FaceTime is a form of call, uh, and so it's not against the law to make a call while you're driving. So long as your phone is securely mounted to your person or your vehicle, the audio is coming through a Bluetooth device or through the speakers of the vehicle, so not on speakerphone, um, and you're not watching the screen of the phone. So if you have the phone set up in such a way as to allow your recipient to see you, but you don't look at them, and you engage in the call while complying with all of those other requirements, technically FaceTiming might not be against the law. Now, does that mean that you should do it? No, don't do it. Don't FaceTime while driving. It is a very bad, distracting idea. And the reality is that, you know, whoever you're, you're needing to talk to so badly via FaceTime, whoever that person is that needs to see your face that badly, you probably care about them enough to want to glance down at them. And that's when you pose the risk, right? If you're in motion, your attention is di diverted from the roadway. If you're at a light, your attention's diverted from the light cycle and you, you may pose a risk that somebody's going to rear-end you. So don't do it. I'm not saying do it. I'm just saying that it's not necessarily illegal and that driver may potentially have a defense. But it's still ridiculous because there are plenty of other ways to make phone calls while driving and I don't know who is driving around using their data to make a FaceTime call when they can just use their like phone plan which is a lot cheaper uh now so uh that is my two cents on the ridiculous driver of the week thank you again to Eric McGracken this week for joining us on the driving law podcast and thank you for tuning in you can find me at vancouvercriminallaw.com or uh give us a call 604-685-888 um, and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.